0: This is American Life from WBEZ Chicago, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm over glass. Okay, the first thing that you need to know is that the nuns came to Todd. Todd did not go to the nuns. His wife worked with these nuns at a Catholic charity. The Todd in this story actually is um, Todd Bachman, who works on our radio show. He's our production manager, which means that he sees that the bills get paid and the equipment works and that everything runs smoothly. Anyway, a couple years ago, These nuns that his wife worked with asked him to help out with this big black tie charity event that they were throwing, this annual event. Donors pay a lot of money. There's a meal in a big hotel ballroom. And at some point during this thing, there's a presentation on stage about what the charity does. That's the part that the nuns wanted Todd to work on. One of the nuns actually asked him to direct this part of it.
1: And I remember I just just had all these delusions of grandeur. I was so passionate about it and so ready and... I just had it in my mind where, you know, the, these people and their tuxedos, they're at this event and maybe there would be like some activity of like a, you know, chinking of the silverware and some like hush, you know, mild conversation that's like almost whispering. And then my work turns on and then pow, silence. People actually listen and they're moved. Like, yeah, this is totally what I can do.
0: Now in previous years of this event, for the presentation part of it, the nuns had some of the people who the charity had helped, elderly people and young mothers, come up onto the stage and read these little essays. And apparently it felt a lot like school. You know, they got real nervous. It just It just felt like class somehow. And Todd thought that he could do better. He had a vision. He had a vision, I'm telling you. He had just started working at our radio show at the time. And he thought, okay, you know what he could do? He could interview these people on tape and then choose a couple of really, really great moments and play those to the crowd. And the people would come on up and take a bow or something. And on the tape, they would sound all relaxed and natural and it would totally get to people. Maybe they'd even make more money out of it this way. And the sister in charge of the whole thing agreed with all of his ideas. But as the event got nearer, something strange slowly became clear.
1: She kept on um, really overemphasizing, like, well, you're the director, you know, so whatever you say, you're the director. And what was funny about it is she never told me. Like, it was, like, so deft of her because she never clearly said, no, 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 we're never going to do your idea. It was kind of like always like hinted like, yeah, 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 we'll get to it, we'll get to it. But they never did get to it. And
0: finally, after weeks and weeks of meetings, at the rehearsal, Todd's responsibility at the event
1: were finally made clear to him.
0: And they were not at all what he expected.
1: It came down to there was a CD player and she wanted me to uh, just hit play on this on this the CD song which was uh, Thank You by Natalie Merchant
0: you got played by a
1: nun I got played by a nun here I thought that she actually wanted my input and I remember being really frustrated and conflicted because I was really mad at this nun and I just felt really guilty for being mad at this nun (laughs) and so I just felt really petty I
0: just think like if you can be used by a nun man You can be used by anybody.
1: Yeah, exactly. I was like coddled, like massaged, like director, director.
0: There is a whole world of experiences like this. You're asked to do something, you think it's going to go one way, turns out to be something completely different, and then you're stuck. You can't do anything about it. It's too late to quit, it's too late to get out of it. This can happen to you at work, it can happen to you with friends. It can happen on a plane, it can happen on a train, it can happen on a run, it can be caused by a nun. Today on our program we hear two rather dramatic examples of this phenomenon. Our program today, Not What I Signed Up For. Act 1 of our program, The Double Whammy. This story is someone who gets into two situations where things work out very differently than she thought they would. One of those situations, with the President of the United States. Act 2, Small Fish, Smaller Pond. We have a story by Nick Hornby. Stay with us, and we will thank you. Equon, hey, hey, hey,
1: hey, hey. so kind
0: of... this story is one of those stories that starts off as a tragedy and ends up, not exactly a comedy, but um, it just kind of, it's one of those things where it just sort of sits there, you know, halfway between tragedy and comedy. It starts sad. Marianne Fontana, her husband, was a firefighter. He dies at the World Trade Center. And then after 9-11, she finds herself embroiled in a series of political fights with the city. The first one is to see that her husband's firehouse isn't shut down by the city. Then it goes on to how the cleanup is going on at the Ground Zero site. And in the course of this, she starts an organization with some other firefighters' widows. And she talks a lot to the press. She talked about these issues. She talked about the conditions that firefighters were working under when the World Trade Center attack happened her husband was earning less than $26,000 a year. Anyway, so she's getting maybe 100 calls a day from all kinds of press, from Polish TV to Newark radio. And she had to choose. Um, My criteria for doing media was that I needed
2: to be able to talk about um, the organization and the site recovery, and that's really all I wanted to speak to. I didn't want to go on any tabloids or... You know, talk shows
0: or anything like that. Did you did you find yourself in the situation though, where, where in order to actually get out the message that you wanted to get out, like that that you would be doing shows and would be giving interviews, where a part of the interview would be like, "Well, tell us your sad story," and then another part would be, "Okay, so now, what are you here to talk about?"
2: Yes, yes. They, all, in fact, almost all of them did that. Do that because a lot of them were focused on the fact that my husband died on our anniversary. Um, It was our eighth wedding anniversary, and they wanted, you know, to kind of give them a blow-by-blow of the day and how—and I could understand that. I mean, it's human nature, I think, to want to know what happened. But, um, you know, I can understand why an interviewer would want to hear that as well.
0: Another firefighter's wife, who was a PR person, helped her field the 100 press calls a day and figure out which interviews to do. Which leads us to this story about a time when Marianne ended up in a very different situation— than she thought she was signing up for?
2: Um, I was usually running on the cell phone from one place to the next, and that's when my PR person called and told me that there was a news show that I had never heard of called E! Online and that would I want to go on that and speak about the organization. I said, sure, not knowing what it was.
0: And what did you understand about E! Online?
2: At the time, I just figured it was some kind of web news thing that I didn't know about, not being very computer savvy, and that they'd get their you know little about what I do and that would be it. And whenever I did these news shows, there would be, you know, a tiny little green room and a tiny little makeup room. You know, the news shows are all 5-minute interviews. Um you're brought into sometimes the newsroom itself and they sit you in a chair and you talk to a camera, you never talk to a person and um hmm. so I was very startled to arrive outside of these studios where there were about a hundred um Puerto Rican girls in down coats and giant earrings kind of lined up to go into the Fox studios and I figured, oh, they're probably you know going to see Ricky Lake or something and mm-hmm. and then got ushered into this back room and there was a huge maze of of doors and we stopped at this door that had my name on it, and that was in itself kind of startling and not. Protocol for what I was used to, and I opened the door and there was a fruit basket and a phone and makeup mirrors, and I went, my 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 what 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 is this And they said, "Make yourself comfortable, we'll come in and get you into makeup and I said, okay. so I started making phone calls. I was supposed to be at an Elliot Spitzer meeting, and I was missing it, and I was up
0: Elliott Spitzer, the uh, attorney general
2: right he w- we were dealing with the victim's comp issue at the time, um mm-hmm. and so next thing you know i'm being ushered into the hallway. And I start to hear, you know, the audience, and they're going, hoo,
1: hoo, 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 hoo,
2: like the Arsenio Hall show used to do. And then I really sure. started to get worried. I said, "What is, what is this?" I said, "What is going on?" What
0: is, what is E Online?
2: Well, I misunderstood. It was the Eonla show.
3: The name is, the name is E-Onla. E-Onla. Eonla.
2: They walked us from the back um, across the stage, and I saw these big giant letters spelling Eonla. I-, um, I, I quickly realized I was definitely in the wrong place or completely misunderstood what the show was about. And so I leaned over to the big woman next to me. I said, what is this? And, and she said, oh, it's Yanwa. She's like the late-night Oprah. And I said, oh, oh, okay. And I'm trying to turn to the other woman on the other side of me and find out more when they you know, ushered us to be quiet and they did a countdown and the camera's rolled, and out comes this, you know, very pretty um, African-American woman with tightly cropped hair.
3: How's everybody? Yeah. Good. I know you. Don't I look gorgeous? You look- Tell yeah. the truth.
2: So today's show is about people who've been to hell and back. And uh, I said, oh, okay, <laughs> this is going to be interesting. And, you know, this was in December, and they had just found my husband, actually and on December Uh. 6th and so I had just had a funeral for him I just had a burial and um, you know I was really not back from hell clearly.
3: Today you're going to meet people who when they were backed up against the wall they learned something about themselves and they've taken the scars and they've turned them into lessons positive lessons. And
2: so I was kind of sitting there and um, they brought up the short very fit guy first. And they showed this video that he had made that looked like the lens had been smeared in Vaseline, you know. And it was this sad music, and they show a close-up of a liquor glass. And they they said, you know, Tim had a happy life until he fell into drugs and alcohol, and was arrested for drunk driving. And you know, the sad music plays, and but he turned himself around when he started to you know do triathlons, and then teach other kids the you know power of being physically active, and you know, everyone starts to be very moved, and the girls, the Puerto Rican girls behind me who are outside, <laughs> start crying, and they're all very touched by this video, and and then the lights come up, and Ian interviews Tim about um, his role, you know, coaching teenagers.
3: I'm always so grateful that God is a God of a second chance. Any moment can be the moment.
2: She was using all these platitudes. I just remember her saying, um, you know you hit rock bottom because God made the rock.
3: And I knew this time that when was it. When it's time, it's time.
2: There isn't a nice sincerity there.
3: I'm being inspired. No, <laughs> I used to, well, to really? sit and I'd think, I, I want to do that someday.
0: I think wow. it's neat. Did the, did the thought occur to you, I can just leave? <laughs> I can walk out the door.
2: Um, well, we were sitting in the front row. Um, and there were a lot of cameras on stage and there was, I guess we were mic'd up and I kind of felt trapped. I really didn't feel like I was in a position to leave and <laughs> I couldn't even talk. They kept silencing us and telling us quiet on the set.
3: We're back and we're talking to people who've been to hell and back.
2: Because and so um, really then we came back from commercial and they, and they brought up a very large uh, woman, now. gray hair, and they she also had a film and she was from boston so she had this you know very thick boston accent she's like mark was a shy and beautiful boy but on christmas eve 1997 my life as a wife and mother of three was tragically turned upside down it's all about her son and how he you know went next door and there was a gun and he accidentally shot himself
3: so instead of celebrating the holiday we were faced with picking out a casket and planning our it was
2: very sad and they showed all these pictures and again the girls were crying behind me and I was crying at this point because it was just very sad and she's crying on stage and um Iyanla was sitting and she's still making all these you know platitudes and and um the woman the big African American woman next to me starts shaking and she's like oh lord I'm so nervous I'm next I'm next and I I am about to ask her you know well, what what did you do and they start with um a video of how her son was killed, I guess, eight years before um, and was shot in front of her. And she couldn't get over the death of her son. And she started drinking and she started smoking and she gained 150 pounds. And then she interviews her and, and she's crying. And again, everybody's crying and it's very sad. She can't get over her son. And the starts saying... You know, why can't you get over, Earl? you got to get over, girl. You know you do. You know you do. And she's like, I can't. I see his face. I see his face in my dreams. And
3: he used to call me Shorty. I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. Say it now. Tell him you got to say goodbye. I just don't want to. Well, you have to, my darling.
2: You know, they're having this very intense... Um, interaction and everyone's crying and then they cut to commercial and and she says when we come back we have a 9-11 widow who's going to help Yvonne come back from hell and that's when I really started to panic
3: and you'll hear about her brave battle through the grief and we'll talk about her road to recovery when we come back
2: and they bring me up into the chair across from Yvonne, who's crying. Oh my! You know she's a mess. She just can't stop sobbing. The makeup people are running out and trying to reapply her foundation, and you know. Oh my! Uh, yeah. <laughs> I I start trying to um, wave to the director, who's this kind of guy with a Caesar haircut, and and him and I, Eon, are going over cards, and I'm trying to get their attention. I'm like,
0: excuse me, excuse me. I'm, you know. And 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 at that point, are you like trying to like plan out something to say to her?
2: Yeah, I just, I felt like, you know, what can I possibly say to this woman who lost her son, you know, and especially since I have a son, you know, and next thing you know, we start, and they cut they go silence, and they count down again, and she starts to introduce me as a 9-11 widow who started an organization, and she, her first question was, you know, Marion, what advice can you give to Yvonne? And I completely froze. I just, I was looking at her face. She looked so sad and heartbroken and I was so sad and heartbroken that I just felt completely incapable of speaking. I felt completely inept. And so I really fumbled and I said, Well um I would just say reach out. Reach out to people who've who've gone through what you've gone through. I know it's hard to you know, you think it's always going to be sad, but we tell funny stories of, you know, staying up at night and obsessing, and there's a lot of different ways to be with other, and commiserating is just so healing. Well,
3: let's call it group healing, not group commiserating. Healing. Well, you know, knowing that, you know... Going <laughs> I, know, you know I
2: could tell, um, tell Iamla was evil, not happy with my responses because she was flipping through her cards, and going, she actually stopped, and, and, and for get get a second we went in, off air. I and said, in, and I just so don't know if I'm really clear on what I'm supposed to be doing here and she's like well I just want you to give, give her some advice and I was like okay and they go back on and I just said you know I just think maybe being active or joining an organization or you know so it was really clearly uncomfortable and after a while Ionla just gave up on me and turned back to um, Yvonne and just said Yvonne I'm going to give you an exercise and made her start speaking to her as if she were Earl.
3: Tell me what he would say to you right now. I think he would say it. No, you say it, because you know what he would say. Shorty? I think, I know. I know he would say that he's in a better place. So, Mama, Shorty, I'm in a better place. What else? Take care of his baby girl. Mama, take care of my baby girl. But most important, Mama, I want you to take care of yourself. You know I don't like to see you like this. If you know I'm in a better place, And if you know I'm watching you, do it for me.
2: I think the whole time I was in there, I just, like the show, To Hell and Back, just kept echoing in my head going, I'm just, I'm in hell right now, (laughs) you know, right right here, right now, watching this uh, play itself out, yeah.
0: What's so crazy about that is like, like you're saying, like you weren't sure what to say. But like who would know what to say? It's a situation where we're like, what can possibly be said to somebody, you know?
2: Yeah, I really I really felt for this woman. She was so heartbroken and yeah, it's hard. It's hard for for people on both sides. I've been on both ends of it. My husband's wake there were three thousand people who came up to me and you know, there is nothing to say and people feel so uncomfortable because I'm sorry is all we have, you know, really. And um and that is all we have to say about death you know so i don't think there's anything better to say
0: you know one of the things about about this whole experience you had that's so strange is is that Somehow, like if you think about the people who they who they're bringing up, like there was the guy who was like the alcoholic, and then there was the woman who lost her son, and then there's the woman who had had both things happen to her. Right. And then like, and then they bring you on as like, here's the very worst thing we can think of. Yeah. Do you know I mean, what I mean? Think like, of it that way. yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like you're trumping all of these other tragedies. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Because of nine eleven, right? Right. And and like, and then you're going to be the expert who's going to step in and like. Heal and solve the problem of the people who who are sort of less expert than you because you've gone through something so much more intense than they could even understand somehow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah,
2: I do. And then ironically, I felt the complete opposite because they had the benefit of time passing so that they could heal a little bit. And I felt so fresh in my wound that I I really felt like I was completely incapable of giving them insight. But I felt that way... A lot about 9-11 in general, people really wanted to learn something from it or connect to it in some way or understand it through us. And and it was a very strange and continues to be a very strange experience.
0: At that point, you're, you're sort of like a walking symbol. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Has that, has that worn off over time?
2: Um, no, actually. It makes it very hard to date. Really? <laughs> it makes it hard to do a lot of things.
0: Like what happens when you date?
2: Well, you know, um, you know, I've had guys say I'm never going to fill your husband's boots and you know things like that. So I think it's it's hard to meet people yeah. and who are not intimidated by that.
0: So at some point in like the weeks and months after 9/11, you really became a kind of spokesperson mm-hmm. through like a series of accidents almost. Yes. Were there other times that you found yourself like as a spokesperson in just very strange, you know, situations?
2: Yes. I mean, I've always been outspoken. I have a very political family. Um, We're all very opinionated people. And you're
0: New New Yorkers, so you're probably Democrats. Right. Do you find yourself in a situation where you were meeting, like, high-level administration officials? Like, did you meet the president? Did you meet... Yes. Really?
2: Yes. I met the president uh, three times. And um, it was very surreal. I went down for a bill signing, um, which was a a bill he was signing to... um, help the victims' families with taxes for that first year. Um, and that is where I met Hillary Clinton, who then invited me down to the State of the Union address um, where I had met the president again. And then um, in the second anniversary, um, and I, which I think was the oddest time for me um, to meet the president, um, my vice president of my organization, who uh, his name is Lee, and he was um, lost his son Um, who was a firefighter, and he was a firefighter himself. So he was among all the fathers down at Ground Zero who were looking for their sons. And his best friend, John Vigiano, had lost two sons. One was a police officer and one was a firefighter. And they had made a short film about him that won an Academy Award. And for the second anniversary, um, President Bush was supposed to come up to Ground Zero and do the whole anniversary thing, and he couldn't. So instead, they had a small viewing of this movie in a kind of Party for John Vigiano. I don't. I I don't know why, and so I totally. I didn't want to go down um, because it was not only was it the day before the second anniversary, but I did not feel comfortable with this administration at all and what they were doing. And so, oh, this is
0: in the run up to um, Iraq. By then,
2: right? Oh yeah, we were already in Iraq. And so I felt very uncomfortable. I said, oh, you don't want me to go. I said, uh, and he always teased me about, you know, having a big mouth and saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And, and he said, no, I I absolutely want to go with you because Governor Pataki is going to be there. And we had just had a rally that day about the memorial and wanting Ground Zero to be sacred ground and it to be treated as such. Um, Pataki had kind of backpedaled on some things he had said before. So we had this big rally and he was going to be at this small, Um, dinner party Mm -hmm. at the White House. And so once it presented that that he was going to be there and it was a chance to talk to him about this, then I said yes. And we went down on the train and um, the rally had lasted so long. We were literally running for the train, trying to make this dinner, stopped at my friend's house. He told me it was formal, so I put on this sparkling blue gown. um, And we arrive at the White House and go through this elaborate security system and I walk out into the Rose Garden and I'm and everyone's wearing business attire, black suits, and including mm. the women in brown suits. And I am in this sparkling blue <laughs> dress that I wore at my <laughs> sister's wedding. And I just saw all the Secret Service men kind of, I could just imagine what they were whispering into their lapels, like, whore in the blue dress has just entered the, <laughs> the <garden." laughs> you know. And I was furious at Lee, who's, you know... He's in his late 50s, and you know, short, and I, I I felt like I looked like his hooker, basically. So we went in, and um (laughs) which is
0: really not a good feeling in the Rose Garden. No, I was so
2: (laughs) self-conscious. I'm wearing completely the wrong thing. And, um, you know, I, I get a glass of wine and all I really want to do is look at the White House because I'm like, wow, I'm in, I'm in the White House. And so I want to look at the architecture. And I literally, Mm -hmm. if I took two steps out of the garden, there were about nine secret service men following me. And so I was just playing with the dog because I'm just, you know, Lee (laughs) made me promise not to do anything inappropriate, not to talk to anybody, you know, about my liberal politics. And so I was just waiting, um, until Governor Pataki came and, and then, you know, I'm looking around this odd conglomeration of people, including Maury Povich and Condoleezza Rice and the Rumsfelds. And it was just a very, and I felt so uncomfortable. I just wanted to go home. I, I really was feeling kind of emotional about the anniversary and feeling like a hypocrite being there. And so we we got um up to Governor Pataki, and, you know, and he talked to us about how hurt he was that we had this rally. And I talked to Libby Pataki about uh, some widows that she knew. And, and, um, you know, we chatted for a while and said what we need to say, and then I was ready to go home. But then there was a buffet dinner and a film to see. So we had our buffet dinner and I sat all the way in the back of the garden at the farthest picnic table in the back and, um, I'm eating quietly, waiting for Lee to join me. And, um, I hear someone say, um, is this seat taken? And I look up and it's Donald Rumselt and his wife and they want to sit at the table with me and I I was like no nobody's sitting here go ahead so they sat down and Lee joined me and of course Lee having served in Vietnam and and you know having about 28 medals on his class a firefighter uniform immediately got into the conversation and um, Donald Rumsfeld had just gotten back um, from Afghanistan so they were you know chatting about all this stuff and I decided I would be a good friend to Lee and just talk to his wife Joyce about his daughter's rock climbing. So that's what I was being good, but half an ear was listening to their talk and I was getting more and more upset and I could feel my face turning red. And then finally, um, Rumsfeld turned and said, "Marion, what do you, what do you think about all of this? And I said, oh, you really don't want to know what I think. And he's like, no, no, I actually, I really do. I'm, I'm curious what you, what you think. And I Lee I look at Lee you know to get permission (laughs) if this is okay and he nods and I said well actually I think you used the death of my husband to go into a country of no business being and it felt kind of like a cop-out at the time because I there was so much
0: more I wanted to say because there's some more direct thing that you can say than you're taking the death of my husband and using it to start an inappropriate <laughs> war. Like, what is the what is the mean version of that? Like, what, what what were you holding back?
2: No, I think I was actually being good. I think if Lee hadn't kicked me under the table, I probably could have said more. And um, he just kind of everything kind of got quiet. Rumsfeld nodded and he said thank you and turned back to Lee and they continued their conversation. And um, at which point they called us into the screening room to see the film um, that was made about um, John Vigiano. And we got up and um, President Bush and his um, wife were standing there kind of receiving, like a receiving line. And um, Lee introduced me to the president and said, you know, this is Marion Fontana. She lost her husband. Um, Tomorrow's also her wedding anniversary. And he said, oh, that's terrible. You got the double whammy what he said the double whammy and uh I was like yeah I'm the double whammy that's right
0: and what did you want to say like if like what does the person I just say thought it was
2: truly one of the stupidest things <laughs> I've ever heard you know there were some politicians that I felt were very sincere in their um compassion for the families and then there were some that I, I don't think understood what we were really feeling. Um. President Bush introduced me to Laura and I said, Hi, Libby, because I had just been talking to Libby Pataki and <laughs> kind of screwed the names up. And, uh, you know, Lee elbowed me again, you know, and we slid into the row behind the president in this tiny little screening room. And so I was kind of up against the wall and Lee was sitting next to me and Condoleezza Rice and some other guy. And, and, um, and then the film began and I didn't even think about what the film was about. And, uh, you know, the screen opens and it's the towers burning and the shaky cameras filming it. and Aye. And I lost it like I've never lost it publicly in my life. I just started almost like having an epileptic seizure of grief. I just couldn't. I was hysterical. I, I was I was sobbing really loud I'm and I had to get out of there. And so I literally just stood up like a hysterical woman, which I'm not, but suddenly became and started clawing my way out of the row and, you know, um, stepped on Condoleezza Rice's foot and, and they had pulled a curtain over the door and I couldn't find the knob. And I'm like at the door, kind of shaking the curtains and Lee's behind me trying to find the door. And and the Secret Service men are just, you know, the whore in the blue dress is on the move, you know. And uh, I ran out into the hall, and and I was just sobbing, and I couldn't stop crying, and they were following me down the hall, these Secret Service men, I was screaming at them to leave me alone. <laughs> it was just really terrible, and I, they got some young intern to show me into a, a small bathroom that was, like, hidden behind a bookcase, and I sat in there for about half an hour, just sobbing my eyes out, and... Uh, that was my last meeting with President Bush.
0: <laughs> so, and, and do you think it's just the combination of of like being in like the most alien environment possible, and then suddenly just like missing your husband so intensely, like it's all coming together at once? Yeah, like that's exactly. why. Absolutely, yeah.
2: that's exactly what happened. And it was the anniversary, and I really wanted to be home with my son and. Um, you know, and I, I had that feeling in my stomach like I made the wrong choice. I shouldn't have come down.
1: Yeah.
0: Did you feel uh, protected by, like, your public role in that sort of situation? That is, you know, you're there as um, somebody whose husband died and, and in a way that, like, like it gives you a sort of pr- protection. Do you know what I mean?
2: Yes. I mean, I really have never in my life felt more free to speak the way I want to speak because I felt like I'd lost everything anyway. So there was really nothing to lose.
0: Marianne Fontana. She's written a book about her experience called A Widow's Walk, a memoir of 9-11. Coming up, who'd have thought two stories in one program where somebody meets their president That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This American Life, Myra Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, not what I signed up for, we've arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, small fish, smaller pond. For this act, we wing our way across the Atlantic. For this story,
4: from Nick Hornby. I was six or seven when I found out how small our country was. I was the last one to know in my class. The teacher pinned a big map of Europe up on the wall and showed us the countries around us. France, Switzerland, Italy. And I put up my hand and said, ''Where are we? Where's Champina on the map?'' And everyone, even the teacher, laughed at me. ''You can't see Champina on the map, Stefan,'' she said. ''Why not?'' I asked. ''Because we're too small.'' ''But we must be there somewhere.'' ''Of course we are, but you can't see us,'' the teacher said. "'How can you not see a whole country on a map?' I asked her. "'I could feel my ears getting red. "'The other kids knew something I didn't, I could tell. "'Do you know why we're called Champina?' the teacher asked me. "'I shrugged. "'No, I thought it was because we were champions of something.' "'All the other kids laughed again. "'And what would we be champions of?' said the teacher. "'No, Champ is French for field. "'We're called Champina because our whole country is no bigger than a field.' Champina used to be a field until we built the village on it. You mean we're the only village in the country? I couldn't believe it. Our village is tiny. The other side of the stream is France, the teacher said. Italy is behind the fence at the back of the village shop and Monsieur Petit's garden is half in Champina and half in Switzerland. You could walk across our country in less than a minute. You could do it while holding your breath if you wanted to. You could even throw a stone across it, so long as you threw high and didn't hit Monsieur Petit's bedroom window. Why didn't you tell me we lived in the smallest country in the world? I asked my mum when I got home. I thought you knew, she said. How am I supposed to know, I asked her, if no-one tells me? What difference does it make anyway, she said. ''I know everyone who lives in our whole country,'' I said. ''Well, that's nice, isn't it?'' my mother asked me. I wasn't sure about that. ''Anyway, don't countries have presidents and prime ministers and things?'' ''Of course,'' said my mother. ''We're no different.'' ''OK, so who's the president of Champina?'' ''I am,'' she said. I looked at her face to see if she was joking, but she wasn't. ''You're the president of Champina, you?'' Yes, she said. I thought you knew that, too. You don't, you don't do anything. You just make our sandwiches and do the washing. I go to a meeting once a month in Monsieur Grimondi's bar, she said. I knew about those meetings. All the grown-ups in the village talk about litter and mending the fences so that the cows don't wander into the road. But what about saluting soldiers, I asked her. You have to remember, I was very young. We don't have any soldiers, she said. And what about putting people in prison? We don't have a prison, she said. And we went on like that for a little while until I understood that Champina isn't really a country in the same way that Italy is a country or France or America. It doesn't have its own stamps or money or television or prisons or soldiers or air force or navy. Anyone could invade us tomorrow if they wanted to, but no-one wants to. There wouldn't be any point. No big countries need an extra field, a shop and a cafe. But even though we didn't have most things you'd find in normal countries, we did have our own soccer team. My dad broke his leg because of soccer. He wasn't playing though. What happened was that he was watching a game on TV and the TV suddenly started flickering and then smoke came out of it and the screen went black. I wasn't watching. I was reading on the sofa. I hate all sports, especially soccer, because soccer is the one that people talk about the most. He was really annoyed that the TV was broken. He stood up and he kicked his chair. What about the old one, my mother said. The little one worked perfectly well. She was angry when my father brought a new TV. She said we didn't need a big screen, but that's because she only watches programmes where people talk. She doesn't watch sport. If you need to see a tennis ball or a soccer ball, then a small TV is no good. Where is it? my father said grumpily. It's in the attic, said my mother. He was in too much of a hurry because he didn't want to miss any of the game. He got the ladder, climbed into the attic and then fell when he was trying to carry the TV down again. We all heard the crack. We knew straight away that he'd broken something. Three days later, when he was pushing himself into the kitchen on his crutches at breakfast, he said to me, You know what this means, don't you? and I pretended I didn't, but I did. It was the first thing I thought of the moment he fell out. What does it mean, I asked him. It means you have to play, he said. I didn't say anything. You have to, he said again. I don't, I said. There's no law that says so. Including my dad, there are exactly 11 men and boys in Champina who can run up and down a soccer pitch, and they all play for the national team. No-one has ever refused, even though it's torture. We should be playing against other villages, but because we're a country, then we play against other countries. They're not big countries. We play against San Marino and the Vatican and places like that. But all these places have more than 11 players to choose from, and they all beat us hollow. San Marino, for example, usually lose their games against Italy or France by nine or ten goals, but when they play Champina, they beat us 30-nil. No one had ever asked me to play before because I was too young and because I wasn't any good at sports anyway. And, I'll admit it, I was a little bit fat. Not gross, just chubby, I suppose you'd call it. I spent a lot of time reading books and playing chess and not so much time running around like a lunatic, which is how the other kids around here behave. But now I was 14 and I knew that if anything happened to any of the other players, I was the next in line. And now something had happened... To my dad, of all people. How many kids of your age can say they've played soccer for their country, my dad asked. It's not really much to boast about, is it, I said. You're only asking me because there's no one else. If there was one other boy, or man, of the right age in the whole of Champina, you wouldn't be asking me. Everyone plays, said Dad. Nobody has ever said no. It's your duty, Stefan, your duty as a citizen of Champina. You always have to have 11 players in a soccer team, I asked him. I mean, everybody does. Dad looked up at the ceiling and rolled his eyes. I can't do it, Dad, I said. I'll just make an idiot of myself. But if you don't, none of us will be allowed to play, he said. There are rules about this sort of thing. Anyway, we'd look bad. We'd be the country that didn't have enough players for a soccer team. We're already the country that didn't have enough players for a soccer team. I'm not a player. Players are a favour to me, he said to make me feel proud of you. But that's just the thing, I said. If I play, you'll be ashamed of me. And then I went into my bedroom and shut the door and read a book. A few days later, I was at home watching TV when there was a knock at the door. Mum and Dad were in the cafe having one of their meetings, but in Champina it's safe to leave your kids at home without a babysitter and it's safe to answer the door. You'll always know the person standing on the other side. It was Monsieur Grimondi. The President wants to see you, he said. My mum was still the President. No-one else wanted the job, so people kept voting for her. There didn't seem to be any rules about how long you could stay President. I laughed. I'll see the President later, I said. It's not funny, he said. She wants you to come to the cafe immediately. She can talk to me when she comes home. She'd be your mother then, Grimondi said. This is presidential business, not family business. And what happens if I refuse? Then I'll have to take you there by force. The president has given me permission to do so. She was worried that you'd be unhelpful. I didn't want to be dragged down to the cafe by Monsieur Grimondi, so I put my shoes on. All the grown-ups were in the cafe. My mother was sitting on her own in the middle of the room like the teacher used to do in kindergarten when she read us a story with everyone else arranged around her. Ah, she said, Stefan, take a seat. Someone got a chair for me and put it inside the circle so that everyone could watch me talking to my mother. This is so stupid, I said. Somebody tutted, probably because I'd been rude to the president. I'll ignore that last remark, she said. ''Is it right that you gave Monsieur Grimondi permission to bring me here by force?'' I asked. ''I knew he wouldn't have to,'' she said. ''You're a sensible boy.'' I looked at her. ''I didn't want to have an argument in front of everyone, but I wouldn't forget it.'' ''You know why we've asked you to come here?'' she said. ''I wasn't asked. I was ordered.'' ''I'll ignore that too,'' she said. ''Do you know why you're here?'' ''I guess because of the soccer,'' I said. ''You guess right,'' said my mother.'' The President, because of the soccer. You've been given the honour of representing your country and you said no, is that correct? That is correct. And you're aware that if you don't play, nobody can play? I suppose. And you haven't changed your mind? No, I hate soccer and I'm rubbish at it, as you know, I told her. I noticed my shoelace was undone, so I spent as much time as I could tying it up again. Sometimes, the President said... We have to do things we don't want to do. In wartime, young men have to go to war, but they don't want to. This isn't a war, I pointed out. It's a dumb soccer match, and soccer sucks. Right, said my mother. OK, then. Will you wait outside for a few moments, please, Stefan? The council needs to talk in private. I stared at her, saw that she was serious, and left the cafe. They closed the door behind me, so I couldn't hear anything. When I was let back in, I could see that my mother had a very serious expression on her face, and for a moment I almost believed that she was a president. Stefan, she said, we respect your decision not to play for our national team, but you must understand that living in our small country, well, as a citizen of Champina, you're entitled to many things, things you probably take for granted. You attend our school, you use this cafe, you buy candy and cookies in the shop, you walk on our roads and paths, Those rights are now withdrawn. For a moment I couldn't understand what she was saying. You mean I can't go to school? No. You might think that was no big deal, but it was. The only library was in the school, for example, and if I wasn't allowed to borrow books I'd go crazy. You're not joking? No. You're not going to let me walk on the roads? No. I'd been given a prison sentence. I'd be stuck in my house forever. I'm sorry if this seems unkind or unfair, my mother said, but when you live in a small place, you have responsibilities. What you choose to do or choose not to do has much more of an effect than it would in a bigger country. We don't think you should be allowed to take without giving something back. My other shoelace had come undone. I tied it up. OK, I said, I'm in. I'll play, but only because no-one gave me a choice. They didn't hear the last part, though, because they were all clapping. (laughs) I didn't have to train. I told them that I wasn't going to, and that was the one thing they let me get away with. The rest of the team met every Tuesday evening. They always ran a couple of miles first. They usually jogged up the hill into Switzerland. We can't even go for a run inside our own country because it's too small, unless you want to run round and round the field. I mean, I know I should have gone to training. I hadn't kicked a ball since I was about three, and anyway, it wasn't like I was super fit. But I didn't want to have to think about soccer until I actually played the stupid game. When you play for a team for the first time, they call it your debut. Well, I made my debut against San Marino, as if you couldn't have guessed. Champina hardly ever played anyone else. The last time we played them, we'd lost 28 nil. but the general feeling was that it might be even worse this time. No-one said this was because of me, but I could tell that's what they were all thinking. It was a home game, which meant that we changed in our homes. The San Marino players changed in the toilets at the cafe. My father gave me his red-and-white striped shirt, and I found a pair of white shorts. I didn't have any boots, so I wore sneakers. Then I put on my denim jacket and walked down to the field with Dad. ''You might enjoy it,'' he said. I laughed. ''You don't have to watch,'' I told him. ''It's going to rain. Why don't you go home?'' ''Everybody watches,'' he said. ''The whole village, the whole country.'' ''I've never watched before,'' I told him. ''No,'' he said, ''you were the only one.'' That made me feel bad. I felt bad that I didn't know everyone else always watched the team and I felt guilty that I'd never made the effort. It wouldn't have killed me to do something everyone else did, once in a while. When we got to the field, Dad patted me on the back and wished me luck, and I went to stand with my teammates in the middle of the pitch. I was the youngest player, and Monsieur Grimondi, who was a bit younger than Dad, was the oldest. The only one who really looked like a soccer player was Monsieur Blanc, who worked at a fitness centre in Italy. He was tall and slim, and he could do that thing with the ball where you keep kicking it and you don't let it touch the ground. He was our captain. Stefan, he said. Welcome. He shook my hand. We thought we'd play you midfield, wide right. I didn't understand a word, and I stared at him with my mouth open. Well, you know you left from your right, don't you? Yes, of course. So, you see Michel there? He was pointing at Monsieur Flamini who's a painter and gardener. He's the right-back. Stand about 20 metres ahead of him and try to help him if he needs help. I nodded. I didn't think it was a good idea to ask any more questions, though, and in any case, it was time for the game to start. We let in a goal after about a minute. It wasn't my fault, because everything happened over the other side of the field. The tall chap who played in the middle of their defence sort of wandered forward with the ball and then gave it to another man who was standing right on the edge of the pitch, near where my dad and the rest of the country were standing. And this edge man ran very fast with the ball towards our goal, passed it sideways, and someone else, a little guy who didn't seem to do much apart from score goals, kicked the ball into an empty goal. About three minutes after that, the same thing happened. Tall chap to edge man to little goal-scoring guy, goal. And then again and again. San Marino scored 13 times in the first half of the game, and nine of these goals came in the same way. I only touched the ball once in the first half. Monsieur Flemini got the ball and passed it to me, very gently, because he knew I wouldn't be able to do anything if he kicked the ball hard. I stopped it with my right foot. Well, I nearly stopped it anyway. And the next thing I knew, I was lying on the ground, and every single part of me was ringing as if I were a bell. My head hurt, my back, both my legs, one of my arms. I knew that in a soccer game, people could sometimes be told that they weren't allowed to play anymore. It seemed to me that this man, whoever it was, I hadn't seen him coming or going, might not be allowed to play football ever again. He would probably have to go to prison for a week or two. I almost felt sorry for him, but when I picked myself up and looked around, no one cared. Everyone was just playing on as if nothing had happened. When there was a break in the play, I said to Monsieur Flamini, Did you see that? What? What happened when you gave me the ball? Yes, you lost it. You gave it away. I didn't give it away. Someone came in and smashed me to the ground and took it from me. It's called a tackle, Stefan. Get used to it. So that's what it's like being grown up, I thought. People can just knock you down whenever they feel like it and no-one says anything. It made me wish that I was getting younger every year, not older. At half-time, we stood on the pitch because there was nowhere to go. Monsieur Blanc gathered us round him. Well, he said, it's obvious what's going wrong. We have to stop that little guy from scoring all the goals somehow. We're not marking him properly. He's got too much room. I didn't say anything. I just listened. I know what we should do, he said. We'll have to stop worrying about the left side and pull Michel into the middle. Michel Gard was an accountant who lived in the village with his mother. I suddenly realised that even though I was the worst player in the team, the rest of them didn't understand what was happening in the game. They really couldn't see it. So what was I supposed to do? I was new to the team and useless at the game so nobody would listen to me. But if I kept quiet, we'd let in even more goals. If I kept quiet, we could lose by 50 or 60 goals and everyone would say it was my fault. There was something else I'd noticed. Monsieur Blanc was our captain and our best player, but he didn't do anything. He was always standing too far away from the action with his hands on his hips. I couldn't understand it. He was 26 and tall and very fit and he was happy to watch everyone else do all the work. He saw me looking at him. Something on your mind, Stefan? Not really, no, I said. Any tactical changes you want to make? Everyone else laughed at his joke, and that annoyed me. Yes, I said. What did it matter? The worst that could happen was that they wouldn't ask me to play again. It's not the little guy who scores all the goals we should be worrying about, I said, it's the edge man. The edge man? He asked. What, who's the edge man? I looked over to where their players were standing chatting and laughing and spotted him. Him, there, the one drinking out of the water bottle now. Why is he the edge man? Because he plays on the edge of the pitch. The winger, said Monsieur Blanc as if I was stupid. What about him? He's the one that gives the goal scorer the ball. Without him, the goal scorer couldn't do anything. Monsieur Gard nodded. He's right. He's been running past me all game and I can't stop him. I need help. Monsieur Blanc looked annoyed. He thought I was going to say something ridiculous and instead I'd seen something he hadn't. Anything else, Stefan, seeing as you're the expert? I'm not an expert. I said I just noticed some things. Oh, well, tell us some other things you've noticed. I shrugged. Okay, I'm not being rude, but what do you do in this team? I'm the striker. That means I'm supposed to score the goals. ''But we're never going to score a goal,'' I said. ''We never have the ball and we're never at the right end of the field.'' This time a couple more people nodded and I saw Flamini smile to himself. ''But if you wanted a job to do, you could stop the tall man.'' ''Which tall man?'' ''The tall man who plays in defence. He's the one that gives the ball to the edge man every time. So if you, I don't know, got in the way or something, it might make it harder for them.'' ''It was weird. I knew I was right.'' but there was still no reason for Monsieur Blanc to listen to me. Just when I was about to give up and tell them to forget it, my mother, the president, walked onto the pitch to give us some encouragement. "'Bad luck, lads,' she said. "'You're playing well.' We all looked at her as if she was mad. "'Any plans to change things in the second half?' she asked. "'We're going to double up on the right winger,' said Monsieur Blanc, "'and I'm going to work harder to close down their centre-back, cut off his supply.' It took me a little while to work out that these were my ideas because I didn't understand the words he was using, but when I understood, I looked at him to see when he'd tell her that these were my ideas. Very good, said my mother, sounds very sensible. And then she walked off again. I tried to catch Blanc's eye, but he wouldn't look at me. The second half was really exciting because we didn't let in another goal for ages and ages. Every time the tall defender got the ball, Monsieur Blanc ran over to him and stood right in front of him, and quite often he had to turn and give the ball back to the goalkeeper. And even though San Marino were winning 13-0, the longer they went without scoring again, the more embarrassed they became. The tall defender and the winger even had an argument. And we all started to run faster and jump higher and tackle harder. The crowd got excited too when they saw things had got so much better. They knew we couldn't win and they knew that they weren't even going to get a goal. But as we went 15 minutes and then 20 minutes, even nearly 30 minutes of the second half without letting the other team score, you could tell that they were proud of us. They even started chanting and clapping. We made three stupid mistakes in the last 15 minutes and let in three goals. But when the referee blew the whistle for the end of the game, there were a lot of smiles on our team. Losing a second half 3 to nothing was Champina's best ever international result. Just think, said Grimondi, if we could play like that in the first half and the second half. Here, we'd lose every game 6-0, laughed Flamini. I knew what Grimondi meant, though. 6-0 felt like a soccer score. Good teams, teams you've heard of, lose 6-0 sometimes. Nobody ever loses 26-0, though. As we walked off the pitch, the whole crowd, the whole of my country, cheered us. And then my teammates did something I will never forget. They walked quickly to the side of the pitch, stood in two lines, and clapped as I walked between them. Even Monsieur Blanc joined in. That was the last time I ever had to play. The next game they used Grimondi's 10-year-old son Robert in my position and he was better than me. I was told to watch and tell them where they were going wrong. I became the coach. You've got brains, Grimondi said. We haven't. In my first game as coach, we lost 12-0. At the end of the game, the team did a lap of honour.
0: Nick Hornby, he lives in London, and normally he calls it football, not soccer. His story appears in a collection of stories for children and young adults that is a fundraiser for the literacy program 826NYC. The book is called Noisy Outlaws, Unfriendly Blobs, and Some Other Things That Aren't As Scary, maybe, depending on how you feel about Lost Lands, Stray Cell phones, Creatures from the Sky, Parents Who Disappear in Peru, A Man Named Lars Farf, and one other story we couldn't quite finish, so maybe you could help us out. That would be the name of the book right there. That's that's the entire name. Let me need some in the book, too. Our program was produced today by Jane Feltis and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Laura Bellos, Diane Cook, Sarah Koenig, and Lisa Pollack. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder, Elizabeth Meister, runs our website. Production help from Todd Bachman, the Catholic. Special thanks today to Tanya Bunsuka and to E26NYC. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the very last week when you can call in and get on the radio by telling us your true, honest to God, it really happened. Scary stories for our Halloween show, which is just around the corner. To get on the radio, call our hotline 1-866-66 Scary. You know, you can download today's program in our archives at audible.com slash this American Life. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. This American Life is made possible by Volkswagen of America and the Volkswagen Jetta, reminding listeners that safe can happen anytime, anywhere. Volkswagen Jetta, safe happens. And by Powell's Books, an independent bookseller since 1971, featuring author interviews, unabridged book reviews, and more on the web at Powell's.com. WBEZ Management Oversight by Mr. Tori Malatia, who came up to me earlier and asked...
4: Okay, I'm not being rude, but what do you do in this team?
0: I'm Eric Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life.
4: PRI Public
2: Radio International